In the days immediately following the murder of Joy Blanchard, Omaha PD is conducting their initial interviews with all of those closest to Joy. They have spoken with Joy's boyfriend, Ken, who was the unfortunate soul who discovered that the love of his life has been brutally murdered while he was in transit over the road on his way back to her. They are making their way through their list of known attendees of the Day of the Dead party that took place on November 2nd of 2007. During the late evening hours of November 4th, Detective Chris Perna receives a phone call from the sister of Joy Blanchard, a woman named Candace. She tells Perna that she's beginning to have a bad feeling about someone close to her with respect to that person possibly being either responsible for or involved in the murder of her sister. Perna is all ears as Candace states that she would prefer to have the conversation in person. She supplies him with her address. He asks her, now? It's pretty late. As it was after 11 p.m. on a Sunday evening. Yes, now would be fine, Candace replies. Perna can sense that she is anxious to speak with them. He can hear it in her voice. We'll be right over, he tells her, and hangs up the phone. He immediately calls Officer Mark Majewitz and tells him that he needs an assist on an interview in the Blanchard murder. Now, with interviews like this, cops like to pair up, as two sets of ears and eyes are always better than one. Majewitz tells Perna that he'll meet him at the residence. At approximately 11.35, they arrive at Candace's home. Candace opens the door as the officers approach. They are met inside by Candace, her husband, and their roommate, Gina. Candace invites the officers to sit down at the kitchen table. And with that, Perna asks what information it is that Candace has for them. She takes a deep breath, and a look of consternation is plastered upon her face. She begins by telling both men that she has a strong feeling that her son, Charlie, may be involved with their sister's murder. Perna and Majewitz give each other a quick look as neither man expected this to be the topic of conversation as they made their way over to discuss what information Candace may have for them. But this isn't either man's first rodeo, so their optimism is tempered by their experience in handling matters of this nature for a living. But someone naming their own son as a potential suspect? Well, that is not a common occurrence because this isn't a woman who knows that her son killed her sister. On the contrary, this is a woman who thinks that her son may have killed her sister. It is a very, very uncommon occurrence. Perna asks Candace what exactly makes her believe that her son may be involved. Candace tells them that she had the feeling that her son was involved since the moment she had heard that her sister had been killed. Shit, feelings, thought Perna to himself. Can you be a bit more specific, Candace? Asks Perna. She informs them that her son has possible mental illness issues, and she has reached this conclusion due to the odd behavior that he displays, far too frequently for her taste. Odd how, Perna inquires. She begins to tell them of a recent occurrence, this last Halloween, as a matter of fact, when she noticed a shadowy figure standing in the middle of the street, under a streetlight, just staring into her home through the front window. 
At this point, Majewitz pipes in. Are you sure that that was your son? Well, I can't be 100% certain, but my gut is telling me that it was him. This character was standing out there, peering in. He had the same physical stature as Charlie, and he was wearing a dark hooded sweatshirt with the hood up. My son is always wearing a dark hoodie with the hood up, even in the summer when it's hot as blazes out. It's bizarre. It's just weird. Did the person ever approach the house? Perna asks. No, he didn't, she replies. First, Perna has to try to rule out any common sense explanations. So he asks, it was Halloween night. Isn't it possible that it was just a parent that was watching their kid go up to a house to trick or treat? Candace answers, no, it couldn't have been. Trick or treaters were done in this area by that time. Actually, when I think about it, we didn't have one trick-or-treater come to the house the entire night, and I didn't see or hear any kids all of that evening. All I can tell you is that this person was freaking me out. Did you attempt to go to your front door to call out to see if it was your son? Perna asks. No, but my husband did. He went and opened the door to find out who it was or what they wanted, but by the time he got to the front door, opened it, and walked outside, the person was gone. He just vanished. What do you mean vanished? Like he took off running or what? Majowitz wondered aloud. I don't know. I was looking at my husband as he approached the front door. So I took my eyes off the person for a bit. And when my husband opened the door, there was no one there. Perna asked all three of the individuals what it was that made them think that Charlie may be responsible. They all reply that it was just a feeling they had. Candace, however, elaborated a bit. Well, Charlie had lived with my sister a couple of years ago for a short period of time, and Joy had kicked him out because of something he had said or done. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but she acted swiftly when she gave him the boot. And I know to this day that Charlie is still upset about it. Perna is trying to figure out why she just didn't simply open the door and call out her son's name. How often do you see your son these days, he inquires. Candace hesitates, then answers. Well, he is my biological son, but I have a strained relationship with him and with his two brothers as well. So I don't see or speak with any of them very often. I mean, Charlie can't hold a job. He's always out of money and is always looking for handouts or for a place to stay. I just couldn't take it anymore with him. My sister felt bad for him, and that's why she took him in. She was a very kind, big-hearted person. I actually did talk to my middle son, Jake, after I heard about the murder. And he told me that he had tried to call Charlie about his aunt being murdered, but couldn't get him on the phone. So he finally drove over to the Taco Bell where he works and talked to him there. Jake said that when he told Charlie about the murder, that his brother seemed genuinely disinterested and unaffected. He just told him that he was busy and that he had to go back to work. Okay, and what else did Jake tell you? Perna asks. Well, he told me that he noticed that it looked like Charlie had cuts and bruises on his hands. When I heard this, it really cemented the fact that I believed that my son may have had a hand in this nightmare. Now we're talking... Perna thinks to himself, we finally have something concrete to go on here. 
And you said that this was a day or two after the murder had occurred, correct? Perna says, confirming the timeline. That's right, she answers. Do you know where he's staying at the current time? I believe that I heard that he was staying at his paternal grandmother's apartment. I think that he is still hooked on meth as well, but I haven't seen or spoken with him in six months. The last time I saw him, he had stopped by here and told me that he had had an incident with a neighbor girl over by his grandmother's and that he was asked by the management to leave and to never come back. He asked if he could stay with us and I told him no. You really should talk with him. Perna stands up from the table and says to Candace, Believe me when I tell you this, we will. Perna and Majewitz leave the house without so much as a word spoken between them until they reach their respective vehicles, at which point Majewitz is the first to speak. Looks like we need to locate Charlie Simmer immediately. Perna opens the door to his vehicle and looks at Majewitz square in his eyes and tells him, you're damn straight we do. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 15. Okay, so what you're saying is... We left off with two men from Omaha paying a visit to a certain Russian doctor in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, as they are desperately hoping that they are speaking with a potential suspect in a case that is rapidly going cold. The Russian has given both Warner and Robitaille all the background that they could ever want, and they are now about to get into the meat of the matter. So let's dig in. Warner has just asked the Russian why anyone, anywhere, would be saying that they should look into him. The Russian shrugs his shoulders and frowns. I don't know, he says initially, but then continues. Things were tense at times at Creighton, I admit that. Dr. Patel certainly did not like me and did not think that I was a competent physician. But to try and pin two murders on me, well, that is one hell of a grudge. I agree, that is one hell of a grudge. Is it possible that she was so off-put by your behavior and demeanor that she would believe you would be capable of murder? Not only murder, but of murdering an innocent child? I don't know, detective. I suppose you would have to ask Patel that question, no? Plus, you are forcing me to make assumptions regarding who may have said what. I find that to be rather unsettling. Why don't you tell me who exactly is saying these things? Why, so you can go and kill them as well? Warner thinks to himself. He, of course, doesn't say that to the doctor. Well, that's really not how this works. People tell us things in confidence, and, and we do everything that we can not to betray that confidence. The Russian chuckles at this notion and stares firmly at the two cops. First, Robitaille landing on Warner, locking eyes with him. Unless, of course, it suits you to tell me that someone has said something in order to elicit a response. 
then I imagine you are not so concerned with keeping things confidential. You know, I don't know if I believe you. How do I really know that anyone has said anything about me with regards to killing the boy and the lady? This son of a bitch is trying to turn the tables on me. I bet they taught him interrogation protocol in the Russian army, ponders Warner. But he doesn't take the bait. Well, doctor, that certainly is a technique that is employed by officers during questioning. But I'm not doing that here. We're simply following up on a lead. What about Dr. Hunter? How were things with him when you left Creighton? Oh, I'm sure that is true. You came all the way up to Calgary from Omaha to just ask me some innocuous questions. Questions that you could have easily asked me over the telephone. No, I believe you believe that you have something more concrete on me. And I will assure you of this, however. You do not. I have no issues with Dr. Hunter when I left Creighton. When I left, we were on good terms. And he had stuck by me all along. I never felt as if he had betrayed me. Well, that's interesting, Doctor. What if I were to tell you that Dr. Hunter was one of the individuals that suggested that we look into you more closely? Would that change your opinion as to how things were left with him? The Russian guffaws and responds. <laughs> no, Detective. It would not change my opinion at all about how I felt. Possibly I misjudged Hunter. Maybe he, in fact, was being disingenuous with me. And that may change how I feel about him now, but that information cannot change how I felt about him at the time in question, can it? After all, that is why you are here, is it not? To try and determine whether or not I had such ill will towards Hunter or Creighton or both that it compelled me to go into a murderous rage. This guy's good. He clearly believes he's the smartest person in the room. I'm going to have to up the game, Warner thinks. Yes, Doctor, that's exactly why we've traveled all this way. And yes, I like to lay eyes on people that I'm questioning because I'm pretty adept at telling when someone's full of shit. And that is much tougher to do over the phone. So, just so that we're clear here, it's your position that everything was hunky-dory with you and Bill Hunter when you left Creighton. No lingering issues at all. That's what you're telling us. The Russian thinks carefully before speaking again, as this American is not quite the rube that he believed him to be. Clearly, Hunter had articulated more than this cop is leading on. If we're being completely honest, Bill Hunter would play office politics when necessary, but that was part of his job. I understood that, and certainly did not hold it against him. I maintain that I believe him to be a good man, and at the end of the day, neither then or now do I have any qualms with him, and certainly had no issue with his son. Fair enough, Doctor. But full disclosure, we are aware that it was not necessarily an amicable split with Creighton. We know that you filed suit against them, and for you to be sitting here telling me that you had no issues with Hunter at all makes me think that you're not being truthful, which obviously concerns me a great deal. Because if you've got nothing to hide, then why lie about anything? On the contrary, detective, I don't believe that I'm being untruthful to you at all. If you are asking me if Bill Hunter is someone that I consider to be a friend, well, then the answer is no. 
When I said that he played office politics, it was not meant as a compliment. No, quite the opposite. But as I stated earlier, I knew then, as I know now, it was a necessary evil for him, as he was the buffer between residents and the staff and instructors. For example, when Patel conveyed a complaint about me to him, he would sit me down and explain to me that the residency program was a fluid and dynamic department and that many levels of authority existed. He would often say that physicians as a whole have very strong characters, which I believe was his tactful way of saying egos. It was Hunter who would step into the fray when there were disputes between residents and the faculty. He would explain that there were boundaries and articulate what those boundaries were and what was expected of the residents. He was adamant in iterating that we were not doctors, that we were residents, and that we were the equivalent to slave labor. Now, that last part is how I took what he was saying, not what he actually said. Okay, so what you're saying is that this is a typical boss-employee relationship, that Hunter would flex when he needed to, but it was nothing out of the ordinary. Well, yes, except we're talking about doctors here, not lay people. The stakes are much higher, and the faculty is well aware of this fact. They were in an unquestioned position of power, as they knew damn well that they were in control of all the residents' career arcs. It was well known by all of the residents that no matter how difficult things got, no matter how much we may disagree with a faculty member, that the expectation was that we keep quiet and suck it up. That is just how residency programs work. All right, in light of what you just said, do you feel in your heart of hearts that Hunter was an advocate for you during your time at Creighton? Oh, absolutely. He was the only advocate. Did you take any classes that Hunter taught? The Russian snickered. <laughs> well, detective, residency programs do not have structured classes like one would have in medical school. Instead, there would be lectures and presentations that Hunter gave, and I attended many of them. Warner refusing to let the Russian undress him changes course. So let me circle back to the paperwork that you claim Hunter signed for you after you left Creighton. What exactly was that paperwork? Oh, yes. You see, as part of the residency program, I performed several autopsies at the VA hospital in Omaha, and I needed him to verify that I, in fact, performed them as a part of the residency requirements. He did this for me without hesitation. Well, that's good to know, doctor. Thank you. Doctor, do you have any associations with any other medical schools in the United States? No, I do not. Okay, well, then let's get to the reason that we're here, doctor. I'm just going to ask you this point blank. Are you in possession of any paperwork that would verify that you, in fact, were in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at work for the Allegheny Medical Examiner's Office on March 13th of this year? The Russian stood up from his seat and informed both cops that he needed to go to his office in order to obtain the requisite paperwork. He returned shortly thereafter and produced copies of his work schedule from February, March, and April of 2008. Warner sat quietly in his seat and reviewed what he had just been handed. He skipped February and April and focused exclusively on the month of March. The documents provided that the Russian had worked as the primary coroner on March 5th, 
7th, 8th, and 9th. Document also showed that he was the primary coroner on the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th. He was off on the 15th and 16th. So, at first blush, it appears that the good doctor has a very solid alibi. However, these were merely photocopies, and photocopies can be altered. Warner looked up from the sheets and asked the Russian, What are the names of the other doctors that are on the roster with you, specifically on March 13th? There was a very pregnant pause before the doctor answered. I believe the chief medical examiner, Dr. Jokia, was in attendance, as he was my training program director, and Dr. Fenella, who was the staff pathologist. Warner noted that Fenella had appeared on the schedule on other days in March, but didn't appear to be scheduled on the 13th, which would constitute an inconsistency that needed to be looked into further. The bottom line is that he needs more intel in order to reach a conclusion on the legitimacy of what has just been handed to him. The mere fact that the Russian had these documents at his disposal when in theory he didn't know that they were coming clearly shows that he was preparing for this day. Well, thank you for these, doctor. May we keep these copies? Yeah, I made these copies explicitly for you. When? Just now? When you went back to your office? The Russian seemed taken aback by the question. Uh, yeah, just then. You physically made the copies yourself or did an admin do it for you? Just now. I ran the copies myself, detective. I am capable of using a copy machine, sir. Warner laughed. (laughs) I have no doubt of that, sir. It's just that you were gone for such a short period of time. I must say, I'm a bit surprised that you were able to go back to your office, dig up paperwork from eight months ago, from a different facility, no less, and make copies. All in such a short amount of time. What exactly are you implying, sir? That I am lying about when I made the copies? Not exactly, doctor. I was under the impression that you were not aware that we were going to be showing up here today. So the fact that you had these particular documents at the ready is somewhat surprising to me. What I'm wondering is exactly what prompted you to have these documents at your immediate disposal. At this point in time, Warner and the Russian are in a heated staring match. One which neither man will break. While I suggested to you earlier that I was surprised that you traveled all of this way to speak with me in person, I am not surprised that you are in fact speaking to me. After hearing about these murders, I fully expected to be contacted by Omaha law enforcement. I just thought it would be by telephone. I am acutely aware of how a murder investigation goes, detective, and I assumed that since the son of a doctor was murdered that eventually law enforcement would look at possible connections with Creighton as a possibility for developing a suspect. I am also cognizant that your agency would be made aware that I had left Creighton under less than optimal circumstances and had in fact filed suit against them. In light of all this, I thought that it would be prudent to have my proof that I in fact could not have been the perpetrator at the ready if and when you contacted me. Does that make sense, detective? Well, I'll say this much. 
It certainly shows that you have an analytical mind, Doctor. As such, I am sure that you are aware that we will be verifying all of which these sheets seem to purport. That being said, tell us, what was the protocol for you coming into work back at the Allegheny's medical examiner's office? I'm fairly certain you weren't punching in and out of a time clock. The Russian leaned back in his chair and folded his arms across his chest. You would be correct in that assumption, detective. We did not, in fact, punch in and out. It was more of an honor system. We were required to work at the very least 40 hours per week. My typical work week was much closer to the 60-hour range. Not always, but most frequently. We were also required to work a minimum of eight hours on any day that we came in to work. Okay, I see. So you've provided me with a schedule of days that you were supposed to work, which is very helpful, Doctor. But what these sheets don't tell me is if you actually attended work on the days that you were scheduled. You understand what I'm saying, sir? Of course I understand what you're saying, officer. Unfortunately, what I have given you is all that I have at my disposal. It's detective, and thank you for your honesty. However, as I'm sure that you understand, what you have provided here to us today is not sufficient for us to determine that you cannot be a suspect in the murders. Now, I'm in no way, shape, or form saying that you are a suspect. I'm simply informing you that based solely on these sheets of paper, that you are not cleared, not without some other form of verification. Well, it appears that you have some more work in front of you, detective. Indeed it does, doctor. So let me ask you, did you travel at all, say, out of the country during the month of March? No, I did not. Well, doctor, we are aware that you traveled to Vancouver. When exactly did you go to Vancouver? And who did you go see? Ah, yes, Vancouver. I went to see an old friend of mine who was a retired professor from the University of Vancouver. I also had a wife that lived in Vancouver. I married her prior to coming to Canada. We have a daughter together. Now, at this point, Warner is acutely aware that the doctor has not answered his question about when he traveled to Vancouver. But he lets the omission fester. Tell me more about your wife. Well, we are separated. I had sponsored her to come to Canada, specifically Vancouver, to go to school there. However, once she graduated, she informed me that she was leaving me for some American guy. What about your daughter? Are you close? Not particularly. I have not seen my daughter in quite a while. Not because I do not desire to see her, but because my wife does not facilitate me seeing her despite the fact that I have a legal right to see her. Where's your wife now? I believe she is in Anchorage, Alaska. I've heard that you have a medical license to practice in Alaska. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Why did you get licensed there? Seems remote. Well, it's a beautiful state for one, but I was hoping to get a job in Anchorage, but the cost of living is prohibitive. So consequently, I've taken this job in Calgary. I still hope to move to Alaska one day so I can be closer to my daughter. That makes sense. Let me ask you this, doctor. Can you think of any reason that anyone would describe you as having an anger problem? 
other than the faculty member that made sexual advances on me, which I rejected? No. I admit, however, I did become upset with him, so he may describe me as unruly. I cannot think of any reason why someone would describe me as angry. Okay, do you feel like people stereotype you as angry because you're Russian? You've heard the term angry Russian, right? Do you mean other than you? No, I don't feel like people stereotype me as an angry Russian, and I don't want to, how do you say, perpetuate that stereotype, because I believe it is a myth. When I was in the United States, I was treated extremely well by the people there, better than I'm treated here. Any issues I had in America were due to personality conflicts, not the fact that I'm Russian. That's a fair answer. And just for the record, I don't believe that you're an angry Russian, for whatever that's worth. But let me ask you this. Are you aware from your time at Creighton, who would have a score to settle or a beef with Bill Hunter or his wife? I am at a loss for that. Hunter was a good guy. He stood up for the residents when he could. I think there may have been a fair number of residents that may not have thought that he was doing it adequately. I certainly thought that at the time, as I was going through the program, but reflecting back on my time there, I came to realize he advocated for us, and me in particular, more than I realized when I was there. In the final analysis, he was a good guy. Creighton was a crazy program, not as crazy as University of Nebraska Medical Center, but a very tough program to survive. Because of that, I believe that it was particularly rough to be in Bill Hunter's shoes. Can't win if you do, can't win if you don't. At least that is my view as a former resident. All of that being said, I'm not personally aware of what went on between Hunter and other residents, as I wasn't privy to that information. All I can say is that what happened to him and his family is a terrible tragedy. I couldn't agree with you more there, Doctor. And that's why we're working this case so hard, because the Hunter and Sherman families deserve justice. Are you aware of any residents at Creighton that were placed on academic probation? No, I'm not aware of anyone that was placed on probation. However, I can tell you this, that it is an absolute death knell to anyone's career if they are placed on academic probation because it goes into your permanent record and is an albatross for the rest of your career. It makes it near impossible to get into another residency, and it makes it equally difficult to even find a job. Doctor, weren't you placed on academic probation at Creighton? Now, Warner knew that he had been placed on probation, and that had been erased as part of the settlement of the lawsuit. So he was curious to see how the doctor was going to answer this question. No, I was not. He lied. Again, thought Warner. Now, I'm only going to ask you this because it has been suggested in another interview. Sir, are you gay? No, I'm not gay. I was given information that you made a pass at another male resident. You have the story backwards, detective. The other resident made a pass at me. Are you in a gay relationship with your old friend up in Vancouver? I just told you, sir, that I'm not gay. And he's 76 years old. 
let me ask you this. Have you ever told anyone that you were in the KGB? <laughs> no, that's absolute bullshit. I cannot believe that you came all the way to Calgary, detective, to ask me these types of questions. If I were gay, would that get you any closer to solving the case? If I had told somebody that I was in the KGB, does that make me guilty of murder? I do not understand these questions or their relevance. Horner leaned back in his chair. Well, I guess that's why I'm the detective and you're the doctor. <laughs> I think that you're trying to trigger me to see if you can make me angry. You know, the angry Russian. I have to be honest. After I spoke with the Pittsburgh police, I thought this was done. It's a terrible tragedy for Hunter. If there was stuff going on in the pathology department, I'm not aware of it. I wasn't part of it. I must tell you, doctor, in all the people that we've spoken to, not one has ever mentioned that you had a wife or, for that matter, a daughter. I find it very strange that you apparently do not speak of their existence to anyone. Why is that? Because, detective, it is easier for me not to mention them because then I don't have to explain to people why I never see my daughter. It's not fair, but it is what it is. At this point, Warner is out of questions for the Russian. So, both men stand, and Robitaille hands the doctor a card, indicating that he should call if he has any further information. The Russian tells him not to hold his breath. With that, the interview is terminated. Warner leaves the interview and Canada, feeling as if more questions have been raised than answered by interviewing the Russian. He's going to have to follow up with the Allegheny Medical Examiner's Office to find out what proof they have that the doctor was actually there when his schedule indicates that he was supposed to be. There must be some way they track that information. During the flight back to Omaha, he runs through his notes over and over, and he just can't figure out one thing. If this guy didn't kill Hunter and Sherman, then why the hell is he lying about seemingly insignificant facts? Because if he's lying about those types of things and doing so with great aplomb, then he damn well might be lying about his whereabouts on the 13th. Yeah, he's going to need to dig deeper into the good doctor, that's for damn sure. And we'll see what he finds out on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, just a few tidbits here at the end. I recently did an interview with Lainey Hobbs on Spotify Live, and Lainey is the host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. We were talking about all things Stephen Avery, and it was a really great and interesting conversation. So we're going to be posting that exclusively for our patrons. So look for that in our Patreon. If you haven't joined Patreon, now's a great time to do so. You can join for as little as five bucks, goes up to 25. We really are starting to ramp up with what we're putting in there for our patrons. So we love you. We love that support. It means the world to us. Here's another couple of friendly reminders. On the 19th and 20th of August, we will be in attendance at the Dark History and Horror Con, which is being held in Champaign, Illinois. It's going to be an amazing event. 
Uh, Brian Ward, who puts that thing together, has absolutely crushed it. There's just a massive lineup of not only podcasts, but actors, writers, everything horror that you can imagine. If you're in the area, I definitely recommend you come. Plus, we can meet. It'll be cool to hang out. We will also be attending another live event on the weekend of August 26th through 28th, and that is the True Crime Podcast Festival, which is being held in Dallas, Texas. That is an amazing event. It is chock full with some of the best pods in the industry, and we can't wait for that. And I will be doing a panel with Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit about all kinds of stuff about Israel Keys. And I'm also going to be doing a roundtable with Charlie Worrell of Crime Lines. And we will be discussing about how the media portrays and reports on domestic violence. So that's going to be super interesting. So if you have not gotten your tickets to that, you should now. You can buy them online. They're very reasonable. And you're going to get more bang for your buck than you can ever imagine. And we really hope to see you there. All the pods are going to have all kinds of tchotchkes and merch, stickers, all kinds of goodies. And you'll get to meet your favorite podcasters. So if you're in the area or if not, travel, come see us. You won't regret it. First and foremost to Darren Wood, our EP, the man in the middle, the man who makes all the magic happen, who just recently celebrated a birthday. So happy birthday, D. To Taras Horoluski and Ryan Gack, our musical maestros who mixed, mastered, and created all of our original music. Thank you, guys. It's the best in the biz. Also to my beautiful daughter, Courtney Reese, and Alex Carver, who handle our socials and all of our digital art and all the imagery that you see associated with the show. Thank you, guys. And to my beautiful wife, Allie, thank you so much. You're actually up there working right now as I'm recording, keeping our law office running. I thank you, thank you, thank you so much for what you're doing. You're allowing us to create this pod, and uh, hopefully we're going to turn it into a big guy. So uh, finally... Uh, to our listeners, both our patrons, who we absolutely adore more than you'll ever know, that support, whether it be five bucks, 25 bucks, doesn't matter. It means the world to us. And believe me, all of it goes to good use. I promise you that. We are going to be ramping up everything that we're doing on Patreon. We're going to try to put in a lot more extra content. You already get the ad free stuff, but we're going to try to add even more to make it more enticing for you guys to continue to support the show because it really, really does help keep us afloat. And finally, 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 to you, our beautiful listeners, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being patient with us, for a little slow on getting an episode out, and more importantly, for listening each and every week, because as you know, without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. <laughs>